0: From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz Headquarters at 350, Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, Why Companies Buy Renewable Power, Wisdom from BSR at Age 25, A Post Irma Report on Risk and Sustainability from Orlando, and Why Trickle Down Sustainability doesn't work. Everything's bubbling up this week on 350.
1: Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back.
0: It's September 15th, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. and joining me as always from the other side of the United States is Heather Clancy. Hello, Miss Heather. Hello, Mr. Joel. What a wild week. Mm. It's been, that's just the weather. Um, (laughs) Right. Uh, I was supposed to go to Atlanta. I think I talked about this on the on the show last week for a meeting of our uh, GreenBiz Executive Network that was going to be hosted by Cox Enterprises down there in Atlanta. And uh, my my flight, my nonstop flight from San Francisco to uh, Atlanta was supposed to land at 7:30 p.m. on Monday, and that is pretty much the exact hour that that uh, tropical storm Irma was. Actually, not going to hit Atlanta, but it was going to be—it was, it was going to go just to the left, just to the west of of Atlanta. Close enough that um, I was—I was actually kind of a little bit, you know, scared, excited to go. Um, but uh, Southwest and Delta and everybody else seemed to have different plans, so we scuttled that meeting. And and I know you've got a bunch of friends down there in Florida.
2: Well, so in Atlanta, I, I think you would have been powerless, literally, if you had gone. I, I was speaking to uh, some folks there this week um, in preparation for Verge, and uh, they they were without power for at least 24 hours in some cases. In Florida- well, I, feel,
0: I, uh, I feel powerless most days, so that would be nothing there. <laughs> so
2: right now. Um, in Florida, I do. You know, it's interesting. Um, I guess when you're from New Jersey, you often move to Florida uh, at some point in your life, Um not, not my called, intention ever, but uh,
0: called snowbirds, right?
2: <laughs> but I have a lot of friends down there. Um, I'm happy to say that my father, who used to live down there, has, has had sold his house um, in the in the uh, Naples area, which I was very happy about because that meant he dodged a bullet. My my friends' parents on Marco Island didn't do as well, although they did way better than um, than a lot of people that have lost um, their entire lives. You know, if their if their will, if their homes. But, uh, yeah, one of my friends in in uh, Jacksonville is actually having a freezer buffet <laughs> this evening. What? Uh, he's invited the neighborhood to come in and uh, take part in his barbecue. And actually, he's a really good cook. So, yeah, they, they've been out without power since, um, I guess, Saturday. So he's uh, just so t-
0: taking whatever's in there and firing up the barbie and, and inviting them to the hood. Is that the deal?
2: Yep. <laughs> I love it. So yeah, so we're we're getting ready for Verge and um, you know, I I've been kind of scrambling around planning for my sessions for my moderating uh, duties, if you will.
0: Well, tell me tell me and, what you got. I'm I'm excited. I like to tell you what I'm doing, but what do you got going on on the main stage? I know you've got a bunch bunch of breakouts and lots of other things that, that you're going to be doing, but on the main stage, uh, who who are you interviewing? I've lost track.
2: So, I have a couple uh focused on the transportation tracks, So, and it's a great, it's actually a really fascinating thread. Um, both, both sessions are focused on the urban transportation, uh, issues of the future of now and of the future. And, you know, a lot of the talk that, and the coverage I've seen so far is centers on, um, passenger vehicles, right? So you hear a lot about, well, how do we plan for, uh, someone to drive their car in or commute and and what is, should you have congestion pricing and, you know, how do you limit the number of vehicles in, in a city? Uh, does a city own electric vehicles in the future and, and, and use that as a service? So you you hear a lot of chit-chat about that, not so much on the commercial transportation side. So, you know, what does it mean as a city gets larger to deliver products, to deliver packages, to deliver things uh, throughout an urban center as, populations grow as e-commerce grows and so forth. So there's a couple of sessions I'm doing um, on that topic on the main stage, which I'm I'm excited about doing a lot of prep work for that. That, That's a a, a really,
0: really interesting topic. I just want to say that, and, and are you going to be part of the urban mobility summit that's going to be taking place?
2: Yeah, it's uh, the both of the, the. I'll just give a shout out to the the folks that are um, doing the research in this area. Um, UPS, of course, as a as a logistics giant, has got some uh, new research with us with GreenBiz um, that they're they're releasing this week, but we'll be talking about in depth next week, as well as McKinsey. Super, super thought leadership um, from both of these organizations on this topic. A lot of questions. Um, there's a lot of pilot sort of experiments going on how do, you know how do you solve this issue like one, I mentioned congestion pricing, you know what does that do to the logistics network in a city um, if you if you're playing with that on the passenger side? So great great topic and I think a lot of good discussion will be had around this. I don't know that there's a lot of answers yet. This is definitely one of these topics that there's lots of opportunity, lots of challenges, lots of questions but not a lot of answers at this stage. So, what about you, Joel? I know you're like on a lot of different topics. So, what's got you excited?
0: Well, I've got um, I don't know half dozen or so uh, main stage interviews, uh, and um, yeah, they're all they're all pretty cool. Um, uh, first of all, on, on on Tuesday, the opening day of the 19th uh, September, next Tuesday, that's wow, it's coming right up. Um, I have a conversation with Van Jones, uh, which is to uh, be really interesting. We've had Van uh, before. I had a conversation with him. A couple of years ago, along with Tom Steyer, this is just uh, one-on-one um, to talk about uh, this incredible world that he's been around, the, the messy truth and the work he's been doing at reaching across uh, around the country to red states and trying to understand the common ground that we all have with, particularly as, a, as we get look at sustainability and the green and clean economy and uh, opportunities for all. I've got another session on uh, how the world's biggest buyers catalyze sustainability for the rest of us with um, the uh, head of sustainability for Walmart, the head of sustainability for Amazon, and that would be Laura Phillips at Walmart and Kara Hurst at Amazon, and Miranda Ballantine, who just joined the Business Renewable Center at the Rocky Mountain Institute, And, uh, got a conversation on cities, um, got a conversation with Lisa Jackson from Apple and no, I'm not going to ask her about the, uh, new iPhone 10. Oh, Um, come on. (laughs) She will, uh, I'm sure have a few tips on how you, uh, face recognition and all of that. But, um, yeah, I got a a number of others. So it's going to be a really fun weekend. Um, before we get off this subject, I want, want to make sure that those who can't make it uh, to tune into the live stream, which uh, we'll be live streaming all of the main stage events. And if you are in the Bay Area uh, and don't want to or can't attend the whole conference, come by the expo. This great uh, interconnected expo will have lots of technologies uh, and, and little talks and other things being going on there. Well, it's all powered by a renewable energy microgrid costs 50 bucks but you can get in free because you're a podcast listener but you register using the code v as in victor 17 expo that's v 17 expo yeah just come say hello it's the secret code it's not anymore uh so well let's move on from next week to this week at the week in review Well, one of the things we're going to be talking about at Verge a lot is renewable energy procurement. And on the Monday, actually starts reception Sunday night and Monday into Tuesday morning, we're going to be hosting the summit of something called the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance. It'll be 400 or so procurement people uh, from around the world uh, buying energy uh, for their companies and cities and other institutions. And amidst all this, another group to support clean the clean energy buyer community has popped up and <laughs> yeah
2: I I, a, I tell was tell us just, about it yeah so um, first of all I am excited about the REBA event I'm I'm actually uh, I didn't mention this this earlier but I'm actually getting to moderate the closing panel there so cool um, excited about that have some really terrific folks on it um, including face, Facebook Marriott and Goldman Sachs so definitely looking forward to that. Um, but as I was preparing it, all of a sudden, in fact, Joel, I think you you surfaced them first. Um, I noticed that there is a new advanced energy buyers group um from the Trade Association Advanced Energy Economy. Now that's a, a group of about a thousand companies, and they do a lot of uh uh I've seen a lot of like policy statements about energy efficiency, um Advanced what they call advanced energy technologies. so they they include um, energy storage in that, hydro, demand response, et cetera. Um, but uh, boom, a new group, the advanced Energy buyers group. And so I felt like we should try to put this in context. I thought, well, shoot, shoot, is this like a competitor to ReBA? like I mean it's it's great that and I noticed who was joining, um, and it was a lot of the same companies that are involved with ReBA. So I took an opportunity to, to call them and say, hey, who are you? What are you? <laughs> um, spoke with Malcolm Wolf. He's the senior vice president of policy and government affairs there. And um, you know, the focus, I think the, the way you can think about this in, in context uh, with, with the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance is that this particular group is going to be really focused on policy. So um, the companies that are involved, or at least at, that are at least publicly involved, um, Five of them are Amazon, right, Lockheed Martin, Microsoft, Salesforce, and Walmart. And uh, so that sounds what, like
0: the you know getting the band back together, the usual cast of characters,
2: right? But the point they're making is that we've done a lot of talking and a lot of work on the transaction side. So um, many of these companies are sharing best practices for how do you put together with the financing, what's the best financing option. When do you do an on-site project versus a virtual power purchase agreement? Which states do you choose? Which markets make most sense? You know, are green tariffs right for you? And there's been a lot of the the REBA group has been terrific. The NGOs involved in that have done many different things in different areas, like the World Resources Institute, Rocky Mountain Institute, um, BSR, and World Wildlife Fund, they each have sort of a different resource base that they're bringing to bear on the transaction side. And while policy has been part of what they've been discussing, they haven't really gotten involved with um, the L-word, if you will, lobbying, <laughs> or at least reaching out and and really getting involved at the, the re- regulatory and policy level. They're raising the issues, but this group is really trying to focus in on shaping the issues, right? So they're going to get involved at the state level. Two places that they're going to get involved first are Michigan, um, which just did just adopted some changes to its renewable um, energy portfolio standard, and Virginia, right? So they're they're trying to influence the, the there's there's a governor's race there right now, and they're trying to to, to make sure that the next person is very focused on, on advanced energy. And I wanted to just uh, I'm gonna run a quick excerpt from my interview with Malcolm Wolf. He here's more on where they're going to focus and uh, why
3: it matters. To some extent, this buyers group is an outgrowth of the work we've been doing for the last several years. So it's not springing out of nothing. So we've got some experience with this already. And what we found is that getting our buyers together, a lot of this information is proprietary. They're not able to share you know, exactly what they're doing in what state, but we're able to have confidential one-on-one conversations, pull it together, figure out a mix of states, that make sure we're engaging in in states that will benefit everybody. Uh, and while any any one company might not care about every state in which we're engaging, at least we'll be engaging in a few of the priorities for all of our members. So, kind of one one very concrete example of that, we've identified I think four or five different policies for largely legislators that they can implement if they want to try to unleash the power of the economic potential of of corporate procurement. And those policies vary from policies that like a green tariff that will make it easier for the big tech guys to buy the gigawatt scale power that they need to community solar programs or on-site rooftop third-party leasing programs that would help a Walmart or a distributed buyer to buy the kind of power they want. So our approach is, let's put together a suite of policies that'll help transform the whole sector, even though any one of these policies isn't going to help every single member. So we're really giving policymakers who are hungry to drive economic development to their state, saying, hey, here's, here's model bills. Here's sample language that you can use to, uh, to solve some of these problems.
0: So the L word is lobbying. I have always wondered what that Showtime series was about. <laughs> That's, that's that's really helpful. <laughs> well, let's move on. Um there's a, another piece we ran this week was called
2: Let's not wa- greenwash the SDGs.
0: That's the one. Yeah. Um and that's really interesting and it also coincides with something that we talked about at the uh Greenbiz Executive Network meeting last week in in Denver at Denone Wave. Um you know the the sustainable development goals I think everyone knows, but just we'll say this is the u n uh, uh created group of seventeen BHAGs, big hairy audacious goals around ending hunger and poverty and empowering women and climate and fisheries and the sea and and all these things um it's got hundred and sixty nine targets 230 indicators and these are the goals between now and 2030 that the world uh, is uh, supposed to be focusing on and and as one result of that this is really a government-led thing but of course uh, this trickles down to the uh, business level and companies are now starting to talk about and in some cases do more with the SDGs. And some, some companies are, are are sort of benchmarking saying, all right, well, these 17, there's five of these that are core to us and six or seven that aren't interesting or not related to us. And a few in the middle there that we need to pay attention to, but it doesn't really say anything about how much to pay attention to. And so everybody's kind of, you know, saying, oh yeah, we're doing five or six or seven, or in some cases, all 17, of the Sustainable Development Goals. And it's just not true. So Nancy Cleveland, who's CEO and founder of Sustrana, wrote this piece. Uh, I thought it was uh, timely and interesting, particularly since the SDGs will be one uh, topic of discussion next week in New York at Climate Week.
2: Indeed, and I, I love, this is a pendulum swing, right? So you have this great new mechanism come into place. The Sustainable Development Goals are, I mean, they're a terrific opportunity for companies. To rethink um, how they are impacting an emerging economy, right? And I, for one, was excited about the interest at the corporate level in, you know, right at the beginning, a couple of years ago. And um, I think the point of this piece, and it's just one of those sort of, okay, folks, let's take a breath, big breath, and put some data behind this. You say you're uh, influencing the economy in the emerging world, you say that you're helping with water goals, but what are you really doing? And, um, I believe that that's sort of the point of the article. And I, 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 again, for me, it was one of those, let's pause, let's take a deep breath, absolutely something we should be focused on, but let's put some more, um, Tactical and meaningful data around what's actually happening and what's actually possible.
0: Well, and here's what I'd like to see happen. I think this might be maybe an article, but definitely something we should be talking about down the line, which is you know, we've been, over the past few years, we've had this uh, growth of something called science based targets or science based goals, which is basically how companies are approaching climate change and, in effect, asking what's our fair share of the climate problem based on on what we do, how much we emit, where we're located, and things like that. And so if if they're doing am- seemingly ambitious stuff, but it's not really enough uh, for their, for lack of a better term, fair share, then it's not really helping all that much. And so they're certainly not solving the the, the climate crisis. We should be having science-based targets for these other goals. So that if a company says, "Yo, yeah, we're doing goals one, four, seven, and eight, mm-hmm. um, we should, well, you know, how about that? I mean, when and some of this isn't going to be easy. Uh, you look at poverty or look at hunger, for example. What does it take to you know end hunger? Well, how many calories does that take? You know, globally, you know, how many billions or trillions of calories? And, and based on uh, our revenue, our f- footprint, or something, what percentage of that should we be helping to uh, ensure? Um, I mean, it may be crude measures, but at least it shows, are we on the right path? So I think um, uh, hats off to Nancy Cleveland for writing this piece. And this is a conversation that definitely we want to continue.
2: Yeah. You mentioned Climate climate Week, and I'm sure this will be part of that. But also, I I would suspect that our friends over at BSR have a lot on the calendar at their, their upcoming conference when, yeah, so... Because I've seen some really good sessions about this topic there at their
0: annual meeting. Well, this certainly goes to uh, what BSR, which is a global organization, uh, does in bringing big companies together to solve a lot of these issues. And Anya Hollemeiser, Associate Editor of Green Biz, uh, wrote a piece called BSR 25, What Businesses Need to Succeed. Um, BSR is turning 25, and I say that with a bit of chagrin because I was there at the creation way back when. In fact, I wrote a book. It's by me and Business for Social Responsibility, as it was originally called. It was published, I think, in 1994, called Beyond the Bottom Line. And I have been to all 24 BSR conferences. I don't know if anyone else can make that claim. And I will be at the 25th, which is uh, October 24th to 26th in Huntington Beach. They are really interesting uh, and just uh, an amazing gathering. Of, of people and, and and talent, I'll have on stage. Uh, Al Gore will be there, and Kara Hurst, uh, who heads worldwide sustainability at Amazon, she'll also be at Verge, and, and just a great group. The president and CEO of TripAdvisor, just a, a number of of top business uh, and society leaders uh, from around the world, and so uh, yeah, I think Anya's piece. Uh, she interviewed my good friend Aaron Kramer, who's BSR's president and CEO. And Peter Michael pruzon jorgensen who's a senior VP, sort of get some of the insights of things that, that BSR has learned over the years about helping companies succeed.
1: Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence, and innovate to secure a sustainable future. Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back.
0: One of the stories we ran this week was an essay called Why Trickle Down Sustainability Doesn't Work. And I thought that was just a fascinating topic, so I called up the author of a good old friend of mine called Scott Case, senior associate at Springboard International, to talk more about that. Hey, Scott. Howdy, Joel. How are you? Good. Thanks for this essay. Uh, maybe you should explain, what is trickle-down sustainability?
4: Ah, well, it's, it's the concept I think a lot of us have embraced, whether we call it that or not, for years. And it's the notion, if we can convince the world's biggest companies and the world's biggest purchasers to demand greener products and greener processes, that that demand is going to trickle down through the entire economy, and we're going to reach some kind of green nirvana, just based on the power of economics. And as I've suggested in the article, when I started talking with people kind of at at the bottom of the food chain, uh, companies that supply people who supply people who supply people who are the ones asking for these questions, they didn't understand the concepts at all, uh, were fairly resistant to the concepts. And a lot of them thought it was just uh, a PR stunt and they weren't paying any attention to it.
0: So you're working as a consultant and working with sounds like second and third tier suppliers, presumably to big uh, multinational companies in their part of their supply chain and they're probably outside or maybe outside of the Philadelphia or other urban centers so you're saying that they don't know about sustainability
4: that's not a term they use they, they weren't familiar with the term, and when I would ask them about well do you get you know a survey questions. Do you have to report information? Are you getting asked about your energy use? Are you getting asked about recycling? And they would all nod and say, oh, well, you know, we get those kinds of questions, but, you know, we don't pay them much mind. Uh, one guy actually told me, you know, he accidentally turned in his, his sixth grader's homework once. Um, suggests, I'm not sure it's a true story, but he was <laughs> using that story to suggest that no one pays attention to this stuff.
0: Uh, the old multinational ate my homework" excuse—I know it well.
4: <laughs> so, so Scott, this
0: this sort of goes counter to the conventional wisdom of you've got all these companies that are uh, have made these big pledges. You cite Mars, and they're just you know spend a billion dollars to cut emissions. And of course, we've written a lot about Walmart's Project Gigaton and 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 dozens of others, where the main effort of this is to push the sustainability initiatives out to their supply chains. Uh, presumably the kinds of people that you're talking to. And you're saying that it just ain't trickling down.
4: I think it doesn't trickle down. And I I think part of the challenge is that the, the big companies recognize they need supplier engagement. And so they talk with their tier one and maybe their tier two suppliers. But I think what's missing in the space is no one is teaching those tier one and tier two suppliers how to have their own conversations with their tier one and tier two suppliers. So what begins as this great, hey, these are important issues and we've got to fight climate change, by the time it gets to the people I've been talking with recently, it's just an Excel spreadsheet. There's no connection to the values that the big Walmarts and Mars, et cetera, are trying to push into the supply chain. It just becomes another box to check.
0: So what needs to happen?
4: I think there's a couple of things. I think one is definitely that the big companies have to begin talking about values and making sure that the values are also being pushed down rather than just the metrics. And I think the other aspect is several people kind of pointed out the disconnect between what some big companies say publicly and what the lobbyists in D.C. say. And they use that as an excuse to say, these things are really not important to these companies. Therefore, it's not really important to me and my business.
0: So in effect, what it sounds like is that there's a conversation that either isn't happening or needs to happen better.
4: I think that's a, a big piece of it. You know, at, when I'm sitting in the boardrooms of the Fortune 100 companies, it's all about collaboration and, and the conversations and, and working together with the supply chain. But when I stepped outside of that green bubble deliberately to talk with smaller local companies, all they hear is just yet another Unfunded mandate another uh, regulation that no one's going to pay attention to another box they have to check and and we're not going we're not going to solve these crises if that's the attitude well that's
0: this is fascinating Scott and thank you for writing this article and surfacing this uh, kind of elephant in the room here and uh, will you come back and talk more about this and maybe write some more about this topic and and how we can do a better job of trickling down sustainability? Would
4: love to. Your readers are already poking holes in some of the discussion, and there's some really good conversation happening. So thanks, Joel.
0: Well, that's what they do. Scott Case, Senior Associate at Springboard International. Thanks, Scott.
4: Thanks, Joel.
2: First Texas, now Florida. Rarely has the United States been hit so hard with a one-two punch of back-to-back hurricanes. Together, Harvey and Irma have caused an estimated $200 billion in damages. That's comparable to the entirety of Katrina, which devastated New Orleans in 2005. The impact on major cities has been profound, and it has left huge swaths of Houston, Miami, Tampa, Jacksonville, and Orlando struggling in the aftermath. Is this a preview of new extreme weather exacerbated by the effects of climate change? How well did the resilience plans for these cities hold up? Clearly, the sustainability chiefs have plenty on their plates. But I managed to claim a few minutes with Chris Castro, Director of Sustainability for the city of Orlando, to get a sense of what's next. Chris, I, I know that you and your team are still taking talk, stock of the damage. Um, but uh, thank you so much for, for giving us a few moments here this morning on Green Viz 350. Um, I hope you and your family are well. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Heather. I think the first thing, I know you, you serve as the chief resilience officer by, de- by default <laughs> there in the city. I'm curious, how well did your uh, your city's plan hold up uh, against what happened? What worked? What didn't work?
5: Sure. Well, over the course of the, of the last 10 years, uh, Mayor Buddy Dyer has really tried to incorporate sustainability and resiliency throughout the culture of what we do, both internally in our municipal operations, but also throughout the community. And um, I want to give our hats off to our emergency manager, Manny Soto, who really pulled together um, an amazing team uh, in terms of our emergency response to to Irma. Um, I I think that a lot of the work that we have been preparing for as it relates to uh, setting up these emergency support functions, whether it's around transportation, information technologies, our public works departments, our fire and police service, of course, Emergency management and much more. Um, we we had a very robust energy ma- emergency management uh, plan, and uh, immediately as we started to see Irma moving closer and closer towards the state of Florida, we began uh, levels of activation uh, that really led us to to full activation on on Sunday. And uh, you know, over the course of the last four or five days, we've been working around the clock. Uh, to ensure that uh, not only our, our residents and our, and our um, visitors are safe, uh, but that we are trying to address uh, many of the inquiries and the concerns uh, that they're having uh, relating to power outages, related to down power lines, as well as down trees, uh, structural damages, and of course, flooding in and, uh, and certain parts of our neighborhoods.
2: Yeah, so you mentioned this sort of uh, plan, the evacuation plan was one thing that we were reading about um, outside of Florida, it seemed pretty imp- unprecedented. Um, and uh, I would love to have you grade that a little bit um you know grade your delivery, especially since you have so many tourists right i mean orlando land of disney um you know that's a big that's those aren't residents those are people that aren't necessarily going to know what to do how did How did you do
5: yeah i mean um when when two five hundred year storms hit in the exact same week, you know that there's obviously something up uh... with the climate and and we certainly realized that because of the evacuation uh, plans that were set into place across the state I believe over six million people were were asked to evacuate from their homes and it's primarily within the coastline as you can imagine everywhere from marco island and naples of course, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, uh, uh, St. Petersburg, and Tampa. These are, are major low-lying parts of our state that are uh, completely vulnerable to, to high-intensive uh, storm surges, as well as, um, of, of course, the rising seas as, as um, these storms come to come ashore. So Orlando had a little bit of a, a unique approach as it relates to evacuation because we were the hub for a lot of the evacuees across the state to come here and uh, reach some type of safe haven uh, we had almost every single hotel in the in the city of Orlando booked solid. I don't think there was one hotel that had availability um, on on Monday, uh, on Sunday and Monday, as well as into Tuesday. And so we had people literally all across the state, from Jacksonville to Miami, from Marco Island up to um, the Panhandle, who were trying to seek. Uh, shelter and they were trying to get away from the coastlines and the city of Orlando and the Central Florida Hotel and Lodging Association uh, were able to really uh, work on providing a a solution for some of those uh, families who were trying to seek uh, shelter and safety.
2: So you became actually safe haven, people were evacuating to you.
5: (laughs) Exactly, so we had a little bit of a unique uh, evacuation plan in that respect. Luckily we did not have a mandatory evacuation in Orange County. Uh, We were we realized that we actually were that safe haven for most of the state.
2: Right, wow, that's that's terrific. Um, now I was reading uh, as of Wednesday afternoon, I don't know what the figure is right now, but that there were more than 3.5 million accounts, electric accounts, across the state, um, uh, still without power, right? And that only nine of the state's 67 counties were reporting no outages, which means all the others were. Um, it could take weeks to get things restored. What's the view from, from Orlando? How did, you, how did your grid do?
5: Yeah, Orlando Utilities Commission has done a fantastic job thus far. Uh, we had over 60% of our residents uh, completely without power uh, for the last several days. And um, uh, thanks to OUC and a lot of the crews that they brought down from all parts of the country, from California to Kansas City to Philadelphia and many others, they came down and have been really helping us to restore uh, that power. One of the challenges, and, and of course opportunities as well, that Orlando faces is we have a pretty healthy urban forest. We have a wonderful tree, tree canopy. Uh, one of our goals is to increase it from 30% to 40% within the next uh, 10 years. And uh, that tree canopy at the same time uh, presented a challenge because many of those larger oak trees that have been around for some, some of them 50-plus years Uh, fell on a lot of our feeder and our lateral lines, and uh, they made a a significant challenge for a lot of the line crews to uh, remove those trees and restore that power. And so that's one of the biggest challenges that we're facing, is a lot of these trees that have fallen on power lines, um, many of them in terms of the city's parks crew and tree crews, we, we are trained and certified to not Touch those uh, trees that have power lines through them. And so we've been waiting for OUC to reassure us that those lines are dead, that they've been disconnected, and they're now able to start uh, to cutting back and removing these trees from uh, the right of way. As you can imagine, these are massive, massive trees. Some of them are 50, 60 feet high, with a, you know, spanning uh, over 60 feet long. And uh, and so when you're taking a chainsaw and cutting these trees, it can take hours to just get rid of one of these trees. And we've had several hundred calls and inquiries come in from the public through our emergency information center that, that have uh, – uh, that we've noted across the city uh, with down trees, with power lines through them. So uh, we, we have been presented a major challenge. Luckily, the good work of OUC that's working around the clock, we now have restored uh, almost all of our residents back. We have about 15% of our businesses and residents that are currently still without power. And uh, the goal is by the end of Friday, 10 p.m., that the full city will be 100% uh, up and running.
2: So hopefully by the time this airs, <laughs> and or you're listening to it over the weekend, this that will be uh, you'll be on your own power again. Um, you, your city just announced a 100% renewables goal, right? I think it was like in early August, actually.
5: It was. It was um, August eighth.
2: So now that you're in recovery mode, are, does that initiative become um, accelerated? Do you do you use this uh, jun- juncture, if you will, to accelerate that initiative to do anything different, or you know? What does it, it do that plan?
5: Well, I, I think that um, this is a prime example uh, about the importance and the need for a decentralized, intelligent um, electric grid that's powered by renewable energy and has uh, available storage and battery backup to ensure reliability, uh, even in a major intensive extreme weather event like a hurricane. Um, you know many of our major feeders and transmission lines that were disrupted um, really knocked out huge swaths of the entire city and if those um, if, if our city had more of a microgrid approach that was uh, that had the ability to island itself. Uh, that it had the ability for it to maintain resiliency through uh, through these events, even if power lines were going down in different parts of the city, that would have ensured that m- much more of our residents would have had uh, power and could have sustained power over time. And um, so I do think that it makes the case for, again, uh, starting to look at a distributed network of, of energy resources on our rooftops, uh, on top of parking lots and parking garages and, of course, commercial buildings and, and being able to uh, really create a, a, robust, a robust network of uh, some of these uh, renewable energy systems and, of course, needing that battery backup. If we're just net metering onto the grid, um, there's, of course, an uh, anti-islanding uh, effect that happens with a lot of our inverters to ensure that excess power isn't being fed back onto those lines that may have been disrupted and uh, can uh, ensure the safety of the linemen who are working on those lines as we're trying to restore power. So many of, uh, you know, we got complaints by many of the individuals who currently have solar and don't have battery backup, and uh, they're Houses also didn't have power, and a major reason is because they're strictly grid-tied, net-metered systems. And uh, for the safety, again, of the individuals who are working on the power grid to restore it, we, uh, you know, we needed to ensure that those, those uh, arrays weren't uh, feeding electricity back onto the grid. So I think it really makes the case and the importance for storage, uh, which luckily is starting to to come out into the marketplace and be more commercialized. I think we'll start to see the utility business model shift as storage comes out, where utilities may even offer storage as a service, even regardless of whether you have solar on your rooftop or not, and allow for you to have this very clean generator, so to speak, in your home to power critical loads. Um, I I do think that this uh, is an exciting future for us, and uh, hopefully will drive a lot of economic development and job creation in the space of clean energy uh, for Orlando and many cities who are uh, trying to move forward to 100 percent.
2: Well I think with that, I, I, I'll let you get back to your job, <laughs> uh, getting those people back up on, 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 the, on the grid and, um, and all of the other important things you, you need to be focusing on. Thank, Chris, thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it.
5: Thank you, Heather.
0: Next week at Verge GreenBiz will be releasing its most recent research report called the State of Corporate Renewable Energy Procurement 2017, and here to tell us about that, give us a little preview is the director of research at GreenBiz, one of the newest members of the GreenBiz team, Paul Carp. Paul, welcome to GreenBiz 350. Hi, Joel. Thanks for having me. So uh, maybe just a little introductions are in order here. You've been with us for seven months now, but this is your first time on 350. Uh, give us a little. A bit about your background and um, what you're doing at GreenBiz. Sure. Well, thanks, uh,
6: thanks, Joel. So I have worked uh, for about 15 years in the clean energy industry. So I've I've been in the public sector, uh, working for the Department of Energy, uh, and most recently I've worked with utilities on smart grid and renewable projects. So you know this is a little bit of a different role for me, but it's it's really exciting. You know the the overall pace of which corporates are purchasing renewable energy and being active in sustainability is is pretty refreshing. And my role is really to work with our corporate clients to help build out our research practice. So you know, this this report is an example of that. We also have a whole set of other initiatives that we're, that we're kicking off with different corporate clients.
0: Well, great, Paul. Welcome. Uh, so we, this time we partnered with Apex Clean Energy, which is a Leading wind and solar developer on this project that I, as I said, is called the State of Corporate Renewable Energy Purchasing. Up. Tell us a little bit about the project. What did you hope to find out?
6: Sure. Well, as you mentioned, you know, Apex Clean Energy is is a leading utility scale developer of wind and solar. And you know, one of the things that I really enjoyed about working with them is is their big focus on sustainability. So, you know, they look at renewable energy not just as a commodity, but really something that, you know, these projects can be the cornerstone of a broader set of sustainability initiatives that can help shape an entire company's brand. And, you know, so as a part of this project, we we partnered with Apex and we surveyed about 150 different business leaders from larger companies. You know, so these are fi- Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 type companies. And we asked them about the strategies that they're using uh, the reasons why they're purchasing renewable energy, the challenges that they're facing, and some best practices that they could share with their, with their colleagues. And as a part of this, we also conducted a series of about 12 one-on-one phone interviews with, uh, with corporate energy buyers, really to dive deeper into some of the specifics. So we set out to baseline some of their current activities and we really have some interesting findings in just in these conversations and through the web survey that we're we're pleased to share.
0: Well, give us a little taste. I know we're releasing this next week, but can you tell us some of the big takeaways? Sure. I think, I think first, and,
6: and it's not really surprising, but corporates are leading the charge. So they're not deterred by the federal government's stated intention to pull out of the Paris Agreement. And we actually found that 84% of the corporates that we surveyed plan to be active in purchasing renewable energy over the next decade. Another 43% of those respondents said that they plan to become even more aggressive. Uh, The other thing that we found is that renewable energy targets matter. So the majority of respondents have renewable energy targets in place, and even 100% renewable energy targets are achievable. So one company that we spoke to cited achieving their 2020 target four years ahead of time, and part of this is because the way that they're purchasing through these large-scale power purchase agreements can make up a huge percentage of a company's goal just with one, with one large project. And you know, then we started talking one-on-one with some of these leaders, and we found a couple of really interesting things. So we know that the market for renewable energy purchasing is continually evolving. And you know we've heard about stories about how companies started purchasing, whether it's through an on-site solar project or through the purchasing of renewable energy credits. And we we started to hear this trend of of these companies really started, starting to focus on additionality. So this is the concept that you know these companies really want to bring additional renewable energy onto the grid and not just purchase renewable energy credits. And you know the other thing that we found is that each company is really uniquely different. So there's no one-size-fits-all approach. And, you know, in talking to some of these leaders about how they're purchasing, why they're purchasing, ways of setting goals, ways of making the business case, it was really fascinating to hear how there was this common theme that the very first large project was really difficult to get through, you know, the CFO's office, to get approval for really purchasing energy in a different way. But then once they... Once they got that first project done, it was pretty clear that, you know, these you know, once the infrastructure was in place, these companies were really well suited to to purchase and continually purchase large-scale renewable projects.
0: So, uh what does all this tell you about where the renewable energy market's going?
6: Well, I think, you know, there's there's still a big, you know, despite some of the uh the bullish uh you know feelings that we heard from the market, there's still a big opportunity for market education. So, You know, there and part of our Verge uh, event next week, we'll we'll hear from folks, the good folks at at REBA, um, the BRC, some of these other uh, organizations that are really leading the charge in helping to equip corporates. But there's still an opportunity for uh, for folks to learn more about specific ways to purchase renewables. So, you know, we did hear that businesses are getting more strategic in the way that they purchase we heard you know, one leader use the analogy of thinking about a renewable portfolio the same way you approach a stock portfolio. So you, know, you want a mix of renewable resources, whether it be solar or wind, uh, a different type set of agreements, uh, contract terms, geography. And as we started hearing more from some of these leaders, we realized that you know, there are many different ways to purchase, but virtual power uh, purchase agreements, for example, are starting to take off. We heard about different mechanisms like utility green tariffs uh, or aggregation of projects across different buyers. And these are sort of new innovative ways of purchasing that are gaining more and more traction. And I think as the industry starts to get more educated and more experienced, We'll see more and more of these initiatives start to start to take off.
0: And we're going to be covering, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, about the REBA summit. Um, but I know you're going to be releasing this on Thursday at Verge. This this uh, report. Uh, tell us about that session.
6: Sure. Uh, the session is called "Real-Time Revelations About Buying Renewable Energy." And we'll be featuring three very seasoned renewable leaders, uh, uh, one from Apex Clean Energy, one from Goldman Sachs, and one from Adobe. And we'll really be talking about it from a couple of different perspectives. So one from the developer perspective in Apex, one from uh, Goldman, both as a financer of projects, but also as a purchaser of projects, and then Adobe as a large corporate looking looking to do more in renewables. So... Um, If you happen to be at Verge next week in Santa Clara, uh, the session is on Thursday afternoon, and I think you'll get a lot of value out of hearing this firsthand from some of the folks that participated in the research.
0: And not just information, but... Revelations. I love that. So, Paul, as uh, research director at GreenBiz, um, there's a lot of other topics. I guess you're going to be working on besides renewable energy. What are you thinking about?
6: Sure. So, one of the things we're uh, we're actually engaging a large uh, global water technology company to start thinking about how businesses manage water. So, what tools are in place? What types of data uh, do do corporates have access to? Um, and ways to quantify the full cost of water. So that project is is just wrapping up right now. Um, We're also talking to, you know, a a different company, a major OEM, about the need for electrification. So, you know, as we start thinking about 100% renewable portfolio standards and really moving the needle on renewables, you know, we're going to need to rethink the way that we power our homes, our buildings, um, you know, the way that we, uh, you know, the transportation uh, both in terms of you know passenger vehicles and large scale fleets is, is conducted, and so that's a really interesting topic. And then finally, you know, we have a couple of sessions at Verge next week around some game changing technologies. So the blockchain, which is this distributed ledger for uh, that can really help transform a number of different industries, including the energy industry, is is really fascinating. And we're starting to think about things like artificial intelligence. And the implications on our workforce. So, what kind of uh, workforce is needed to support some of these new game-changing technologies?
0: Lots more to go on the GreenBiz research agenda. Paul Karp, director of research at GreenBiz, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more of the organization, the stories and events that we've mentioned in this episode. And you can always contact us by email, 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. Thanks to GreenBiz 350 director, Stephanie Joyce, and GreenBiz managing editor, Elsa Wenzel. We'll be back next week from Verge for another edition of Greenbiz 350. From all of us here at Greenbiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.
1: Without federal oversight, who will be the standard bearer for the environment? Who will inspire, influence and innovate to secure a sustainable future? Who will create a legacy of leadership? You will. Lead from the front. The Environmental Defense Fund has your back.